0: Hey guys, this is our weekly podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We're so glad that you decided to join. We are a church family passionate about seeing people worship Jesus, grow in their faith, and serve those around them. If you would like to learn more about Cornerstone, please visit us at cornerstoneion.org, or you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. I seriously love all the kids that are here. It's cool. Um... Just really briefly, uh, my grandparents' church, they live up in Iowa, and uh, they, uh, they became an older and older and older congregation, and uh, my grandpa has some leadership, I think he's an elder there. I also didn't know this, but one time I go up to his church, and uh, we're visiting him in Iowa, and, and we show up, and my grandpa's leading music. Like, I, like you know, like, oh, there's a, you know, organ person. No, not an organ person. A person playing the organ over there, and then my grandpa just starts singing. I don't know. He was, like, leading their music, and um, it was interesting. We had brought our kids, and I, I was blown away with how many people came up and said, it was so good to have kids in the church again here. It was so good to have kids in the church here, and... uh you know, I think that uh, sometimes we're like, man, there's a lot of kids here. And uh, I think that if we didn't have them, though, we would miss that. And so I, I love it. And also, you know, you have a young one that's making noise in the service. It doesn't bother me at all. So um, one of my favorites, though, I think I can say it. I'm scanning. One of my favorites was uh, uh, <clears throat> there was a family sitting up here. This uh, girl, I mean, what is she probably like eight or something, seven? six. Uh, <laughs> I don't really pay attention to other people's kids, I guess. <laughs> uh, she's up front, and you can tell she doesn't really want to be there or whatever, and I'm just kind of like, you know, motoring along, doing my thing, and finally she just full, boy, full voice says, but he's been talking for hours. <laughs> like, that, that surprisingly hurt a little. Oh, <laughs> uh, Anyways, uh, let's get rolling because I got about uh, last service, I think it was 44 minutes, so Um, We're not going to quite have that much time this uh, service, so let's get going. Um I want to tell you a quick story. Um, it's a humi- humiliating experience, so uh, it should be good. It'll lodge into our memories a little bit, and we'll be able to apply this text maybe a little bit better, wrap our minds around it, and remember it. Um, there was a time in my life where I was uh, very, I, I, would, I would go to work and sit with my Christian co workers, and then I would, uh, you know, small group would roll around. I'd hang out with my Christian small group, and then I would hang out with. Uh, you know, I had meetings with Christian people, and then i go back to my Christian family. And, uh, and then all the while, I'm preaching about the importance of being in, involved in the world, world and spreading the good news. And although I felt like I had a place where I was doing that, I felt convicted that I had uh, kind of isolated myself. And I began to kind of feel, I don't know if you've had those dry seasons, I began to feel whatever that was. And so I was like, i got to get in the community somehow and just be around other people. So there's opportunities to spread the gospel and, uh, and, 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 share, and give a reason for the hope that I have, right? The First Peter stuff. So um, I, I started coaching soccer, thought maybe that would be good. And that was a good experience, had a good time. I was out with Ed Spear. I don't know if you know him. If we do uh, the uh, harvest party out at his place, Anyways, that's, that's Ed's place. And um, I don't know how much of a coach I was. I basically do whatever Ed said. And uh, so there's this one time where uh, there's a drill being done, and I'm in the back of the drill. People go do the drill, you know, dribble, dribble, shoot, and they come back into the line. And uh, his daughter actually is there. I won't say which one, but his daughter is there, and uh, she's like, Hey, I heard you played soccer in college. I was like, Yeah, I did. And she's like, Must have been a small school. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, okay, okay. I'm going to go be a cop instead. <laughs> you know, uh, so it was just kind of interesting. me. And she's right, actually. Like, it was a small school. It wasn't even an actual, like, uh, a school team. It was a team that the school allowed us to put together and whatever the admin had to do to get a credit for PE through doing it, right? And she was right. Like, I mean, I played soccer in college, but it wasn't college soccer. You know, it was indoor. You know, we had walls, we had bumpers. It's like bowling with bumpers in there. And so, I I mean, it's kind of, you know, humbling, but she was right. And so, now knowing that about me that um, I barely played soccer past 18. Uh, if there was somebody else who went to like the University of California and, you know, and uh, played college soccer there and had a scholarship and played for years and had the best of the best coaches working with them day in and day out um, and, and then say, uh, uh, somebody came to you and said, Hey, Brian, even Brian is helping out coaching with the soccer camp. And how much more could this person who went to this, you know, college soccer uh, college and, and was trained by the best and played year after year after year and had scholarships there, how much more could he be a good coach? For our soccer camp, right? And, and that, I think we can understand, like, if Brian can do it, then really anybody can do it, right? Or if Brian can do it, how much more could this person do it, right? So we understand that that's what we would call a lesser to greater argument. We still use it because we're familiar with what I just said. We still use it in our culture, but in uh, Greek language and in this culture... Uh, it was used constantly, we see it a lot throughout Scripture. Uh, Jesus uses it a ton, and we're going to see it again on his example here. And what you want to be listening to in this, pa- in this passage, what they're doing is saying, if this person can do this, how much more so would this greater person do this? Does that make sense? So listen for it and see what you can get here. This is uh, chapter 18, 1 through 8. Before we read, let's pray. Father, I thank you for... Uh, redeeming, even humiliating circumstances in my life for the sake of maybe helping us wrap our minds a little better around a text and really feel the context so that we can really get the meaning. Um, God, I pray that you would be glorified this morning, uh, that people would be changed, that our hearts would be changed and softened, that we'd know our Savior more. You would be glorified. We love you, and in Jesus Christ's name, amen. One day, Jesus told his disciples, a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city. He said, Oh, there was a judge. There was a judge in a certain city. He said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Now just make sure we're on the same page. This isn't marriage. This is actually a a, a courtroom situation, okay? (laughs) It's a dangerous joke, but it's worth it. (laughs) To be honest, first service was far more comfortable with it than you guys were, so let's move along. (laughs) Then the Lord said... Learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered just a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on earth who have faith? So, First off, when we read illustrations or parables, one thing we know is that typically there's a point trying to be made. We don't want to over spiritualize things. Like, we don't want to go to this and say um, that, uh, that God hears widows better than orphans in prayer, right? Because that's, that's not the point. Uh, what we want to do is what is being taught here. And, what, and to summarize what's going on, it begins to say there was a judge in a certain city. It does not say the judge's name because it does not matter, it does not uh, say what city because it does not matter. What we have is a judge. And we know what those responsibilities are. This judge neither feared God nor cared about people. And the significance of that is actually that even with our judges now, you would hope that their desire to act as judges would come from a, at least one of two things. One is that they feared God, right? And we would be like, yeah, we, want, we would love a judge who feared the Lord and did what was right in the Lord's eyes, right? Or... You would hope that that judge just just cared for people and wanted wanted to help settle things fairly. What you don't want is a judge who's like, I don't care what God has to say, and I really don't care about you, and I really don't care about you. And so the only thing that's left for this judge is to do what's expedient for himself. And in this culture, and maybe in other cultures more contemporary than that, we have judges that maybe sometimes... They want to do what's going to help them, what's going to gain them notoriety, what's going to move them up the ladder, what's best for them, and it's selfish desires. And what we have here is we have a judge, no name, no city. There's this judge. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't even care about people. And we see how he initially handles this. There's this widow, like the least of these type people that right, the Bible talks about. This culture is like widows and children. It's like, you know, the blind beggars. So at least of these keeps coming to him. And he keeps being like, I don't even care about you. Go away. I don't even care about you. And this widow desperately needs help settling this. And it's actually the judge's job to do it. He's like, I don't care about God. I don't care about people. You would, you, you, you would gain me nothing by spending time trying to solve your petty little issue. But this widow keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. The actual language used is like, this woman's giving me a black eye. And so some people, um, not many, but some people are like, yeah, this, this, this widow is coming. I'm punching the judge in the face. I'm like, come on. <laughs> Jeez. Like, let's read the context here. What's happening? The black guy, we have a similar phrase, right? How many of you guys have yelped a business? you do a Google review? Some of you, you destroy a business single-handedly. Anybody you Anybody do that? Yeah, okay, all right, we, uh, we okay, so there's some, there's some people owning it, like, uh, so we, we've been there, we have some people in the room that can understand what this is, and you can think like, man, that's a black eye for that business, does that make sense? So there's a similar phrase, actually, in this culture, and it's using that, it wasn't good for him, everywhere he's going, someone arguing in public, this widow keeps coming up to him, please, will you, will you solve my issues, and, and it just wasn't good for him, it was a black eye to him, they went to solve this woman's issues, he really just cares about himself. And uh, it also uses words like he's driving him crazy. It's frustrating him. Um, but she said, he finally says, I'm going to see that she gets justice. And then he goes, why? Because she's wearing me out with constant requests. Those of us with kids were like, I get that. I get that. Yeah. So wearing him out with constant requests. And so even this judge doesn't care about God, doesn't care about people, but even for his own desires, finally renders a just judgment. Right? And if. And if that type of judge can give a just judgment, how much more so can the king of the universe who loves his people and is God can give, a justice, give justice to someone? Right? Do you guys see the lesser and greater? That's what's happening. That's the argument again. And it goes on to say in verse 6, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. And it's going to tell us the lesson. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to His chosen people who cry out to Him day and night? Will He keep putting them off? He says, I tell you, He'll give Him justice quickly. So then if we're still like, well, what exactly is the point of this? Right? Because we could be, is it, is it to you know, continue to pray persistently? Is it to be annoying? Is it to see um, our God that, that He will always quickly answer prayers in the way that we see fit. What is it? Let's go to verse 1. This is what I love about some of these passages. It says it right here. One day, Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. That's what Jesus is teaching his followers. And I would say by extension, absolutely applicable to our lives. We are going to be always praying and never to give up. And why? The point is not actually the judge. I went back and forth. I studied this. I crunched numbers as I came to. It. It's not about the judge. Because the judge wouldn't matter if it wasn't for God. It's not about uh, the widow. Because th- the widow would not matter if it wasn't for God. The point is who our God is. How much greater He is than this. And if the, th- this lowly person, lesser person, can make a just judgment, how much more can our good loving God do this? And so the point is that we should always be praying and never giving up with prayer. One time, uh, I've said this before, um, we, there was a prayer seminar. I know that like Baptist churches are like, a prayer what? What do you do there? But uh, there's this, these people that came in that were going to teach how to pray, how, how, what the Bible teaches about prayer. And from that, my dad came back and he said, I always had this question about why to the God of the universe do we repeat prayers ever? Why do we keep going to Him for these things? And my dad said, he goes, I believe it's because that's what His people are to do. That's who His people go to. His, God's people go to the Father in Heaven with what's going on in their life over and over and over again. And it goes back It reminds me, much of this passage reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount, those in desperate need of a Savior. Desperate need of a Savior over and over and over again. Where do we go? What do we need? It all comes back to Jesus over and over again. Then it goes on, oddly enough, as talking about we should be people who pray. It's going to give an example of two people that went and prayed. You see the connection? Let's keep moving. Verse 19. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everybody else. Just for the sake of us capturing context, it just said who he was writing it to. Who was he writing it to? Don't say it out loud. Just think about it. If you don't know the answer... Let's focus back in and get this, okay? Check this out. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and then scorned everyone else. That's the audience. This is what he said. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I'm about to read to you two prayers. Think about your heart's disposition when you pray in which heart you have when you pray. The first prayer goes like this. this. is from the Pharisee. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax, tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, Oh God, be merciful to me. For I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Common theme throughout Scripture, right? you reading your Bible, you're, you're hearing this, right? There, the one, there is not room in the kingdom of God for one who thinks much of himself and that he has earned something worth giving as a sacrifice to the king in order to earn his right standing with the creator of the universe. There's not room in the kingdom for that. And we, you'll see that throughout scripture. There's a, there's a word here, um, exutheneo. It's a word that, uh, that has been translate, translated in this text as scorn. That word means more literally to cast out as nothing, to count as nothing. So you have these people, the people he's talking to, um, one is the Pharisee. He prays, thank you, God, that I'm not like these others. And then scorns them, casts them out as nothing, they are worthless. And he thinks much of himself because he has great confidence in his own righteousness, his own ability to be in right standing with God, to reconcile himself, like he reconciles himself to God. He has done such great things, he goes on to list them. I fast twice a week. Now, that's not a bad thing, actually, right? The Bible actually talks about fasting as if followers of Jesus will fast. Not, it, not some will, but it talks as if it'll be, that it will be something that at some point followers of Jesus will do. They will fast. In Jewish culture, uh, you were required to fast twice a year. These Pharisees would do it twice a week. Look at them, right? They start getting up on their pedestal, right? Scorning, casting those aside that aren't like them as nothing. You're worthless. You can' there's no way you can add up to this. I am creating something great for myself. That's what's going on. I give 10%. Statistically, um, that would be a convicting moment for the majority of us in the room. Um, we know that we're supposed to be generous with our resources, time, talents, and treasures for the kingdom of God, uh, I think that, that as they pull churches around uh, America as well as the globe, I think it comes down to most people give 2% of their income and 10% support 90% of what's happening in the church. We tend to maybe, maybe struggle a bit to let go of that currency by which buys us whatever we want. Now, keeping that in mind, and maybe I don't really care. I don't even look at anybody's giving or anything like that. My point is this, that somebody who's giving 10% or more, fasting twice a week, doing all the rituals, memorizing scriptures, spends the majority of their time at the temple doing holy religious stuff, can, to the eye, appear to be super spiritual and holy. And maybe that person has found favor In God's eyes just by the fact that they're so good. In fact, these are the people that Jesus is speaking to for a reason. And what he tells them, he's like the sinner in the corner who says, I am a sinner and I'm in desperate need of a savior. Please have mercy and grace on me because I don't deserve right standing with you. That is the person who, after he places his faith in Christ, has been justified By nothing he has done. His righteousness is because of nothing he has done. It is because his faith is in Christ alone. And he says that one goes home justified. The one who thinks he has earned his own justification or that he is good enough to slip into the gates of heaven, that person has nothing. Why would that matter? I'm going to read you a text. It's a little long, but hang in there. Many of you have heard it. If you guys hung with us in the Matthew series, you heard it. Here it is. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. I believe this, the point of this text is absolutely true. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, imagine that environment, the Son of Man returns, every knee bows, every tongue confesses, everybody knows, it's like lightning from the east to the west, and the angels come with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations, that means everybody will be gathered before him, that means everybody will be gathered before him, and he will separate people, that means he'll separate everybody from one another, as a shepherd shepherd separates, separates the sheep from the goats, he will put his sheep on the right, and the goats on the left, there will be perfect division, just division by the king of the universe, the perfect Judge. Verse 34. Then the king will say to the ones on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came and visited me. Then the righteous will answer him Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or you needed clothes and we clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels." For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. I believe verse 46 happens. The reason I believe that is Jesus speaks. Jesus himself speaks an awful lot about heaven and hell and eternity. So I do believe eternity exists. When we die, eternity begins for us. And there's literally two options. There's no middle ground. There's no place you go where I didn't quite make it, but maybe I can after this. I believe that there's a separation. The perfect judge judge separates perfectly. And there is heaven and there is hell. So why that matters is the one who assumes that he is righteous by his own power and his own abilities has nothing. Because our own abilities are not enough to accomplish what Christ only could accomplish on the cross. And so they have a false sense of security that will lead to eternal damnation. I believe that's real. And here's the other reason why I think it matters because the person who comes and knows I'm a sinner in need of grace from the King of the universe and that Jesus Christ by His work only expiated sin, absorbed the wrath of God, was crucified on the cross and, and all the penalty for sin for many have been taken care of. And then all now The way R.C. Sproul says it, the way we grasp that work on the cross is through faith. So I believe it matters. It's actually maybe the most important thing in the entire world is where you stand with Jesus Christ. How you think that you are justified, how you think you are made right with God, how you believe you are reconciled to the Father, Matters because if you're wrong, it's an eternal wrong. And also, the Bible is very clear about it. And if you want, the, like, the most, the, the, what I would believe is maybe the clearest, simplest way to remember how do I know that I'm saved? How am I reconciled? Uh, how can I be made right in the eyes of God? How can I have eternity in heaven? The simplest, easiest way I think we can remember this is Christ alone. Christ alone. It goes on. In 15-17, through 17, One day some parents brought their children to Jesus so He could touch and bless them. But then the disciples saw this. They scolded the parents for bothering Him. Let's stop for a second. We're going from prayer... That we should be praying to these two people that came and pray- prayed. And there were two different dispositions of the prayer. Right? One was uh, the Pharisee who thought, like, I am saved by much that I've done. I'm very righteous. The other one was a humble one in desperate need of the Savior. And he says the that one that's in desperate need of the Savior prayers right, prays right and actually goes home justified because their faith is in what is right. And then goes on to talk about these little children. And it's going to come back to authority and faith. Humility. I hope we're seeing the flow here. And what we have is some parents brought their children to Jesus so that he would uh, like touch them on the head and, uh, and bless them. But the disciples saw this, and they literally scolded the parents for bothering Jesus. And this actually um, would not have uh, shocked the community around them. The people following Jesus, they would have been shocked by that uh, because, in fact, Uh, the lower class were constantly pushed away from people in power. And as Jesus rose to power, yeah, keep these little rugrats away, right? Uh, Keep the blind beggars away. Keep the lepers away. Keep the low class away. This is Jesus Christ here. And some of us get that feeling sometimes, right? We're like, Sometimes, not often, hardly at all, but sometimes kids feel like a pester. You ever like feel like you're spending a lot of time with kids and your brain is just like shrinking, right? And you're like, oh, and then you have some like friends come over, some adult friends, and you're just so refreshed. Just have a different level of conversation experience. Like, you're willing to, like, you know, your kids, like, want, like, cupcakes and gummy bears? You're like, absolutely not. Your friends come over you're like, here, here's cupcakes and gummy bears. Go in the back room. Uh, Don't do anything wrong. If you do, don't even come tell me. I'll spank you for it later, right? You're just like, just stay. Just give me a moment here. So that moment is how... Kids in the low, low lives, like even widows, right? Um, uh, people who are sick they are kind of treated in the second class nature. And so as you had a prominent figure coming through, it was, it was normal. That wouldn't have been shocking. But what Jesus constantly does is flips things on their head, right? Where he's like, no, 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 bring the kids to me. And then he goes on to say this. Check this out. Then Jesus called for the children and said to disciples, let the children come to me. Do not stop them for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children, I tell you the truth that means listen up, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it so what is the point, right we're not going to over spiritualize is the point that all of us have to like turn our brains off and like shove beads up our noses and try to stand on the bikes while we go down the hill no, <laughs> what's being taught here, seriously what's, what's being taught here there's something about it, okay. Think of like two, three-year-old. Two, three-year-old is completely dependent upon parents. In fact, if you loaded your refrigerator and your cabinets with all the food, made sure the water was turned on in the house, and you left that kid in that house, they would die there. Because they're completely dependent upon you. And somebody goes like, I know, it's terrible. <laughs> And also we know that those two to three-year-olds are the worst sometimes. There's like a phase they're going through. And so even in the midst of this weird phase they get into, and what's happening in uh, uh, human development, what, what they believe is happening, is that these kids for the very first time begin thinking like, I have a little bit of independence. Like I kind of make my own decision. That's why you're like, hey, we just had this the other day. We went to the lake, the fam- uh, we went down to the lake, and uh, Alexis grabs a handful of sand and throws it. You know, and we're like, no, 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 hey, don't throw sand. And she's like, Picks it up, don't throw that sand. And like, really can see it. Like, she's literally like, What's going to happen? Like, I'm my own person. And they're about to chuck that sand. She didn't chuck the sand by the grace of God. So even in that moment, they're still completely reliant upon you because even when they're about to chuck the sand, guess what happens when they're hungry? They still go to you, right? They still go to mom and dad. They know they're dependent upon their parents. They don't go to the dog. Well... When they, get, when they get hurt, where do they go to? They go to you, right? When they're sad, where do they go to? They go to you. Even the kids that they get hurt, I don't know if you've ever had one of these kids, I think one of ours was like this, they would get, they would get hurt and we're like, oh, come here, let me give you a hug, and they're like, ah, and they just run away for some reason. Well, eventually, they end up making a U-turn, you know, coming back, because they realize, what am I doing? And eventually, yeah, they just want a hug, they want you, they need you. And the, what the Bible teaches over and over and over again, so it's like Jesus says, I want you like that. I want you to be completely dependent upon me in desperate need of me because I am your savior. All all your avenues of life are completely dependent upon me. You go to me for those things. It says he's a jealous God. uh, It does not mean that he is jealous of us as in the sense like I want to be like you. He's a jealous God when he says, I'm the king of the universe and I want all of you. Every single bit of you. In fact, if you follow me, In comparison to all of the relationships, I'm number one. Now, if I said that to you, you'd be like, Brian is nuts. But when it's the king of the universe that created, sustains all things, he knows the numbers of hairs on your head, he knows what you're going to pray before you pray. In fact, when we struggle to know what we pray for, we believe that the Holy Spirit at times intercedes for us in prayer. And he says, I want all of you He says, in fact, if you try to come into the kingdom of God, not knowing that you are completely reliant upon me, you will never gain it. It goes on in verse 18. Once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' response is interesting here. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. His point there is that this, this person is coming, asking a question about eternal life, calling him good, but not God, and so he challenges him, why would you call me good, only God is good, challenging that I am God, you're not using the right term for me, but you're coming to me with the right questions, so there's that little challenge, and then he goes on to say, but to answer your question, you know the commandments, so he starts there, right, and Jesus does this, not only here, but other places. Where people are like, what must I do to be saved? And he starts out, well, well, here's the law of God. And they're like, oh, well, I can't do that. He's like, you're right. You need somebody to save you then, right? He's like, yeah. Hey, I'm the promised Messiah. I'm that guy. Fully God, fully man, in your place, on the cross, as prophesied. Follow me. This one, he says, you know the uh, commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. Then the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. He's like, check, what's next? And then Jesus, and when Jesus heard this, he said, there's still one thing that you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So some of us, uh, because it goes on to say um, that the man like, left and he's very sad for he was very rich. And then when Jesus saw this, he said, How hard is it for a rich for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So we're like, so rich people don't go to heaven. Got it. No. No. Like, you know, that's one of the things. Like, what is it teaching here? Right? We don't take little verses out of context and do something weird with it. Joseph of Arimathea. Did he, did he tell Joseph, you must divest yourself from all of your wealth? No. He says you must not worship that. He says you must use it for kingdom purposes. right? Follow me with that. Uh, He did not tell Abraham, also, wealthiest in his time, for sure, he did not say you must divest yourself of all of your resources. What he's pinpointing for this man, the rich young ruler shows up, and he says, I know you worship your money. Your God is your money. When the Bible says, uh, commandment number one, when it says that you must not have any other gods before me, when, when that message is being relayed to Moses by God, God knows there are no other actual gods. There's one true God, right? So what is he talking about? He's talking about the God of your stomach. He's talking about other gods that make you promises that we carve out of wood. He's talking about the gods that we tattoo ourselves with. Again, like what's the meaning of it? Not that tattoos are sinful, right? If you're tattooing yourself with images of other gods, that's a problem. What is what are the other gods? The god of what's in your driveway, the god of your house, the god of certain relationships, the god of what's on the internet. The God of shopping, the God of gossip. Like, what is these other things that we worship instead of God? Because we already said he wants all of us completely dependent upon us. So what are these things? For this man, it was money. And we know that Jesus nailed it. Because think about this. Say, us followers of Jesus, we ask the question. And say it was actually. This is not true. For the recording, this is not true. But say it was actually. Sell everything you own. Give it to the poor. And you get... You know, the fast track to heaven. Well, a fast track might sound scary, I guess. Uh, you get a for sure pass to heaven. All you have to do, all you have to do is sell everything and give it to the poor and you're in. Every single one of us would do that, right? It's the treasure that we stumble upon in the field and we sell everything to gain it. It's the girl, it's a pearl of great price. But this man, even in that reality, proves I will worship Money instead of you. I will not give up money for you. So what is more important? You cannot serve two masters. What's his master? He chose it right in front of us in this text. And although some of us, we're not choosing money, we're choosing other things to worship instead of giving all of our worship and all glory to God in heaven. It goes on. In verse 26, those who heard this said, then who in the world could be saved? In their mind, think of how often Jesus turns the world upside down. They're thinking, this is the rich man. He's a ruler. He's coming to you asking how to get into heaven. He obviously uh, wants to follow you in some way. Like he's most prestigious and the rich were getting into everything. There's nothing a rich person couldn't do in this culture, essentially. You can't get into heaven? If a rich person can't, who can? And God says it's easier for um, a camel to fit through the eye of the needle. Hey, FYI, spoiler alert, that's impossible. That won't happen. Okay? And I'm not talking about building some weird, fictitious big needle and walking a camel through it. It's literally, it can't happen. That's the purpose. It's impossible. It's all impossible without Jesus. Right? It literally goes on to say this. Like, let's read the Bible together and study the Bible well says, then who can be saved? And he goes, what is impossible for God is possible with God. So yes, even with God, the rich can inherit the kingdom of heaven. Because it's not about the money. It's not about the gossip. It's not about these other things. It's that God is holy and we are sinful in need of a savior, right? It says in verse 29, yes, Jesus replied, I assure you that everyone who who has given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will be repaid many times over. What that is is not saying like I have to uh, divorce my spouse in order to gain heaven. It's that, uh, you know, when it talks about the sword dividing families, like brothers against brothers, sisters against sisters, moms against daughters, fathers against sons, all that stuff the truth is like a sword that divides. And there's times, we've seen it in here, where spouses will bail. Like, you're going to be this Christian person? You're nuts. I don't believe it. I'm out of here. Or one one brother believes and the other doesn't, and it creates this division. And saying, even in those instances where you've essentially, you you, you have lost so much in pursuit of Christ, he says, you'll be repaid many times over, and in this life, and will have eternal life in the world to come. One phrase I go back to over and over and over, and the glories of heaven will pale, sorry, (laughs) no, no, the difficulties on earth will pale in comparison to the glories in heaven. And that is just something I have to keep going back to over and over and over again. 31 through 34, the 12 disciples Taking the twelve disciples aside, Jesus said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem. Remember, this is in this portion of Luke, you're going to see a lot of, we're headed to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem. They went towards Jerusalem over and over again because that's where they're going. Where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He will be handed over to the Romans and he will be mocked and treated shamefully and spit upon. They will flog him with whip with a whip and kill him, but on the third day he will rise again. So in this passage right here, Jesus, again, is saying explicitly, he is now handing over this knowledge and affirming and confirming it, that these prophecies from Old Testament, I am the fulfillment of that. They've seen it and seen it and seen it. He has been more explicit and more explicit about it, and he does it here again where he explains everything, that he's gonna, they're going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be handed over, he's going to be flogged, he's going to be murdered and crucified, and then literally that, I'm going to raise again to life. And the disciples are like... Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And they're just... They still don't get it. Now, in their defense, I'm going to read 34. But they didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words were hidden from them, and they failed to grasp what he was talking about. Possibly, Jesus was giving this information to them, and possibly intentionally hiding it for a time. So that eventually, when it is time to reveal what all this means, it's all going to come together in a big picture at the right time. That will not cause any disturbance To as Jesus hands himself over to be crucified graciously and lovingly in our place for our sins. Then it goes on in 35-43, through 43, and this is the last section. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind beggar was sitting beside the road. When he heard the noise of the crowd going past, he asked what... Uh, what was happening? They told, him, they told him that Jesus, the Nazarene, was going by. So he shouted out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, the people yelled. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and ordered that the man be brought to him. As the man came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want from me? Lord, he said, I want to see And Jesus said, all right, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Instantly, the man could see, and he followed Jesus, praising God. And all who saw it praised God, too. What we have here is Jesus turning upside down again, right? We have little kids and disciples and people around like, no, no, no. Jesus don't have time for these little kids, right? You're the least of these. Get out of here. There's more important people. And Jesus, all the while, is like, no, I came for the sick, I came for these people. I came for the ones that you th- the, the, the woman that you think is too far gone, that is an absolute uh, horrid person. She's a prostitute. We've all shunned her. and Jesus comes and has dinner with her and says, "I came for the sick." So again, we see the blind beggar, and they're like, "No, no, 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 You're the least of these." And Jesus is like, "I want the least of these. I'm here for the least of these. And he calls them to him, and then he exerts his power upon this man and heals him, the least of these again. Another person who is c- completely dependent upon the Lord for their needs, physically and spiritually. In this section uh, of text this morning, we talked about always praying and never giving up because our God is faithful, and that's who we go to for any level of sustenance in our life. Our righteousness, our justification is by Christ alone. Who are the ones that are welcome to the kingdom? It's the ones who are completely dependent upon God. Faith like a child. Not childish faith, but childlike faith. We must not worship anything other than the one true God. Jesus again tells of his death and resurrection in our place for our sins. And then we see the healer, the compassionate, loving God that came for the sick and the lowly to come and share the truth about how to be saved and reconciled to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ alone. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We hope that you found it encouraging and challenging. Please feel free to share this podcast with friends and family, and we will see you all next week.